Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 14th, 2023. Earlier today, we did a show with my old friend Andrew Hill from the Financial Times. They have their best books, best business books of the year out. They just announced the long list, uh, best business books of the year. Um, there's a focus this year on the future of money, jobs, and climate, and in particular, two broad areas, um, technology and jobs, the impact of technology, particularly new technologies like uh, artificial intelligence. And of course, environmental issues associated with climate resources and geopolitics. What's interesting is that none of the books, at least on the long list this year, focused on fusion technology. Been a number of headlines recently on uh, fusion, promised that a fusion uh, rocket will travel 500,000 miles, is apparently under construction. Uh, other headlines about uh, scientists making nuclear fusion breakthroughs, which promises more clean energy um, uh, and how one particular uh, US lab created uh, energy with nuclear fusion. Once again, some people believe this is the beginning of a major new chapter in the history of science. Others a little bit more skeptical. Uh, one headline suggests that nuclear fusion is always 30 years away, rather like the Brazilian economy. My guest today, though, I think is an optimist on what he calls, he's the co-author of a book called Fusion's Promise, uh, Matthew Moynihan. He's written this book with Alfred B. Bortz, uh, subtitled How Technological Breakthroughs in Nuclear Fusion Can Conquer Climate Change on Earth and Carry Humans to Mars, too. And uh, Matthew is joining us from Rochester, New York. Uh, Matthew, congratulations on your new book. It was out earlier this year, but your timing, perhaps like uh, fusion technology, is impeccable. In very simple terms, explain what this technology is. I think most people are slightly mystified by it. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Um, fusion is the mother nature's power source. It, it works by combining two small atoms. And in the process, you lose some of the mass and becomes energy through E equals MC squared. Um, we've been able to do fusion since 1957. That was the first time we actually had a, a machine, a device in a room that did nuclear fusion. But we've never been able to extract more energy out than we put in. But there's now over $5 billion invested in private startups around the world. And there is growth in private fusion startups now. And we believe that one of these companies will get there within the next 10 years. And so this will be a new energy source for mankind. Some people might be listening, uh, Matt, and be rather nervous. Uh, of course, we live um, in an age, uh, well, certainly in a month or two, where Oppenheimer is making all the headlines, breaking records in the movie theater, a film about the dark, the dark implications of, of nuclear technology in the wrong hands. Is this very dangerous technology? So the biggest difference between nuclear fusion and, and the nuclear power that we see today is that fusion power plants cannot melt down. And that bears repeating because 
Um, most of what you see in a nuclear power plant is there to avert uh, a, a runaway chain reaction that can't be controlled and destroys the plant. Fusion cannot do that because it's so fundamentally difficult to make happen. When you lose control of these plants, they just shut down and they stop. And so that's more of an expensive accident than, a, than, a, than something that would be damaging to people's lives. So I think that's and, and that was reflected recently in a NRC ruling that we got from the federal government about how these plants are going to be operated, regulated and controlled safely. They're going to be run like particle accelerators, not fission power plants. And that's going to be immensely helpful for the growth in the fusion industry, because most of what holds up nuclear today is regulatory burden. Does that answer your question, or do you want more clarification? Well, uh, you know, it does in a way, but if you can design um, a fusion rocket to travel 500,000 miles an hour, apparently that's under construction, what would happen when this technology is in the hands of missile makers? <laughs> that's a fair question. Um, the, some of the, there are some optimistic calls for fusion rockets, right? You know, I, I'm a little skeptical that fusion rockets, for example, can make it. But if they all worked out perfectly, you could get to Mars in about 60, uh, 30 days, 30 days to Mars. That's incredible for what that does for future technology, for mankind colonizing other planets, etc. cetera. Um, in terms of rocketry, I, I don't see this being, for example, any better than the existing defense systems that we currently have. And the rocket pieces are, are certainly further out than the, the energy pieces. I'm personally more excited about energy because I'm in this to fight climate change. And that was one of the driving factors for why we wrote this book. We wanted this technology to get out of silos, out of uh, ivory towers, out of national labs, out of uh, obscure government papers or government academic papers, and out into the general public so that everyone can get access to this knowledge and it will accelerate the development of fusion energy. I'm not sure if you've seen Oppenheimer. I'm sure you have. There was one memorable scene in which Oppenheimer talks with Albert Einstein. Uh, Einstein's presented in the movie, very memorable presentation as the sort of the voice of humanity. And of course, when Einstein made his breakthroughs, he wasn't thinking of weapons. He was thinking of making the world a better place as you and many other scientists uh, want to do. Uh, let me rephrase the question, though. I mean, is 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 nuclear fusion? Can this theoretically, in the wrong hands, could it create even more monstrous weapons than the the thermonuclear bombs that um, that Oppenheimer initially imagined and kind of rejected, and which Edward Teller, I think, in the Oppenheimer movie, was a champion of. So fusion generates a lot of energy, and that's true. It's carbon-free energy, no meltdown potential. So it's nuclear without its biggest drawback. But humanity can choose however they want to use this abundant clean event energy. It's a tool, like any other tool. Well, that, uh, and I take your point, but yeah. I have these arguments with AI. So what you're saying is, sure, it's a tool, and if you give it to Albert Einstein, he would use it to solve the environmental crisis or get to Mars and establish cooperatives up there. But in the wrong hands, in the hands of terrorists, in the hands of Vladimir Putin, or perhaps even the American defense establishment, you could create the most 
unimaginably monstrous weapons. Is that right? I don't see how you, you can create a weapon of, of mass destruction. What I will say is that it produces a lot of energy and you can choose to use that energy however you wish. So but that's what original nuclear technology does. It creates energy, which uh, Oppenheimer and his team chose to use for a bomb. Well, we also can't, had Rick Over come along and use it for powering submarines and eventually commercial nuclear reactors. Fusion reactors do not create, this is not a bomb technology. It creates energy, like I said, and energy can be fed any way it, it's used. You know, leaders choose how we use these tools, but we, the scientists and engineers, are trying to create the best tools possible. Yeah, I, don't I rely on other people to decide how they're going to generation of scientists. Well, what, what do you make, Matt, of? Uh, rather glib headlines like the one um, that suggests that nuclear fusion is always 30 years away, rather like the Brazilian economy. It's always full of potential, never actually happens. Well, we've seen amazing advances in the last three to five years. We've had uh, a number of startups pop up seemingly out of nowhere. They didn't exist five years ago. We've had an outpouring of private capital from investors. Uh, I think we're north of six billion I know I said earlier in the call it was five, it's six. It's hard to keep an accurate picture. Um, we've seen breakthroughs on the uh, government side with the ignition shot, a national ignition facility. But I'm even more excited about what's going on at MIT startup, Commonwealth. Um, back in September 21, they broke a world record. They built the largest cold bore magnet ever made. And that magnet drives fusion because in, in these systems, the fusion rate, the amount of energy made per square foot, is the magnetic field to the fourth power. So the whole game right now is take an old fusion idea, add a super powerful magnet, and you get a machine that is within striking distance of net power. And that's the kind of prior assumption that I don't think a lot of people have reevaluated. They haven't, they're not paying attention because no one is paying attention. We are seeing this technology develop incredibly fast it's coming much sooner than most people realize but to be frank most people won't believe it until they can actually see it with their own eyes that's the bottom line matt you 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 suggest you argue that six billion dollars has already been invested in the field which quite frankly i'm talking to you from silicon valley isn't a great deal of money i mean when you think of crypto tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, much of it was wasted in crypto. We live in an age of Sam Bankman-Fried. What can $6 billion buy you when it comes to nuclear fusion? Well, you're right. It isn't a lot of money compared to AI. I think AI got $35 billion last year. Um, but the fact that it exists is more important than anything else because this number was zero not, not too long ago. And what we're doing, what we're seeing is we're seeing the private sector is basically driving the government. The government didn't treat fusion seriously for, for decades. And now the private sector is stepping up and saying, this is going to be important technology. It's critical for climate change. By 2050, we expect these plants to be rolled out. We expect net power much, much sooner, within five or 10 years from some of the startups. And so they're going to draw the government into it. Now, your point about waste is pretty accurate. Right now, we are fundamentally limited by the number of people available to fill these jobs. We have more startups and more money and more investors chasing fewer legitimate people that actually understand this because it was such an esoteric subject for so long that the raw pipeline of talent is super under was under supported. So we don't have enough people 
trained in this. And the other thing is the, the UK government in particular is doing an awful lot around fusion. They're doing they're more aggressive than China, the US or the UK right now or the EU, excuse me. Under the leadership of Ian Chapman at the UKAA, they've set up clusters where they're partnering government labs with private companies. They've set up an internship program where they're funneling students to address workforce force issues. They've created the largest tritium handling facility in the world. That's a fuel that fusion reactors need. They've got a robotics handling facility to cover nuclear reactors. They've stepped up with over 200 million pounds committed to a step machine that they want to build. And they're decommissioning a fusion reactor and making it a teachable moment for the entire industry. So governments are aggressive. Private sector is leading governments. But right now, there's a complete landscape shift in our field that we haven't seen in in the last 10 years. I mean, it didn't exist 10 years ago. We had Michael Waldridge on the show um, last week. He's a professor of AI at Oxford University. And he suggested, and I hadn't really quite understood it in this sense, that generative AI was a bet that OpenAI made, that Sam Altman made. It was actually the idea of generative AI was developed in a white paper from Google, ironically. Is what the UK government is doing, and the same is happening in Germany, another headline is from uh, Marvel Fusion building a $150 million laser facility. Um, are these all essentially bets? Is the instinct of senior scientific and technological officials in the UK, maybe in Germany, and perhaps increasingly in the US, that this is worth a gamble, that this is worth throwing 10, 50, 100 billion dollars at because it can result in such dramatic change. So you mentioned Sam Altman. I'm glad you did because he actually made a major investment in fusion personally. Um, he invested uh, 500 million dollars in Helion with an additional 700 million dollars if they meet all their milestones. If you may, may know that Helion is a fusion startup based in Seattle. And in um, a few months ago, they signed a deal with Microsoft to provide power to an AI data center. This is the first agreement for a fusion reactor providing power to a, a company of any kind. Um, but in terms of your question, uh, the gamble is worth it. And, uh, you know, people mention landing a man on the moon all the time. I don't know if the analogy is the perfect analogy because... It's not 1960 and we don't have JFK as president. We live in a very different political and economic climate. But the payoff is immense, especially even if we don't succeed. The research itself leads to so many valuable spinoff technologies. The biggest one is magnets and wire technology. Fusion is creating the world's best magnets, which is what's, what's going to drive these machines to net power using superconductors. But those magnets can be used in almost anywhere else that you would have a magnet or a wire. So motors, generators, MRI machines, weapons systems, um, uh, wind turbines, energy storage, energy power, EV charging stations, quantum computing, the list of things go on and on. So, you know, there's a lot of juicy spinoff stuff here. Yeah, that I don't think you, that's threw really in, uh, you, you threw in weapon systems there. It's some people are going to be very sensitive on that, understandably, Matt. Um, is this then, I mean, we, we, you, you brought up this, the space program landing uh, U.S. NASA landing men on the moon. 
course, all that was triggered by what was then known as the Sputnik moment when the U.S. realized that the Russians were ahead of um, in, in space technology. Might it be thought that the news this year and last year about global warming, the fact that July 2023 was the hottest month on record, now we have terrible fires, tragic fires in Hawaii, every day, every week seems to bring new stories. Is this perhaps the Sputnik or the broader series of Sputnik moments when it comes to the promise of fusion and the need for fusion? So it's very hard to, to make that connection in Congress. <laughs> um, well, maybe some Congress people will be watching, Matt, and we can make it to them directly. Hopefully. The president called for a billion dollars for fusion this year. It was exciting for our field. It was the most amount of money that renewable technology had ever been given in one go one year. Solar had never gotten that much. So we were all excited in the community when that came out. And it was in response to there was a White House summit on fusion back in March of last year. And there was a number of organizational changes. It seemed like we were really making momentum. Well, the House Appropriations Committee came out this year with their budget and they didn't move the line at all. They kept the funding line the same. Senate is a slightly higher, but still not a billion dollars. I think it's a huge mistake by Congress to ignore this technology. And I'm not going to drill into the politics of this, but unlike the moon landing, fusion as an energy technology does dis does potentially disrupt the oil and gas industry. So they've got. Are you suggesting that the the legendary, notorious? Um uh interests of, of oil and gas the oil and gas lobbies the not the energy lobbies are against fusion i well i can't see a world i mean before i answer your question i will point out that oil and gas companies have actually been great partners for a number of fusion companies um for example general fusion gets a it's publicly known that they get funding through shell through a limited partner with a, uh, an independent third partner um any Italian oil firm has been a, a was a seed funder in Commonwealth. So I don't necessarily think they're adversarial, but I just wonder why why certain members of Congress weren't supportive of our of our bill and our uh, the president's request. So, so if if in your wildest dreams you're clearly a believer and optimist in all in in the, the promise of fusion and the potential reality of fusion, in your wildest dreams, say by 2050, is it conceivable that with fusion we will no longer be reliant on oil or coal or even solar? Uh, I think that it, we need to transition and we need everything under the sun and we're not doing it fast enough. Everyone knows this. And I am, a, I am pro everything that's not fossil fuel, okay? Fusion is one of those tools in our toolkit, just like solar or wind or advanced nuclear. It has specific characteristics, no meltdowns, base load energy source, broad broad power source, gigawatt sized plants. It would be really helpful for the for the Western world, the Eastern world, everywhere, if we could get this technology up and running. But and it, would, it wouldn't allow us to transition. It doesn't it doesn't change everything. It it still would mean that we would need oil and coal and the other forms of energy. Well you know how how long it takes technology to propagate through the world. Sometimes it starts in one country and getting it out of those countries especially if the government came in and put restrictions on certain technologies might stop the flow of that. And, and that would, would dampen its, its impact. But I will say two years ago, the U S did a national intelligence assessment 
They put it out as a public release and they predicted by 2040, climate change would be one of the, the biggest problems facing the security, national security of the United States. Right in the front of that report, they listed a couple things that would change their assessment. And one of those things was a breakthrough in nuclear fusion energy. That was the, one of the four or five things that would change the way they, they forecast the next 20 years or so. So it is significant. You're clearly a believer. You, you have an almost evangelical quality, at least your presentation. I think a little bit about the book, Matthew. When did you first set your eyes on it? Did you fall in love with fusion as soon as you saw it? Uh, I started in this field in, uh, in 2006 when I was 23 years old. You know, I was a little naive at the time. I went off and got a PhD in this. And well, I've been naivety working... isn't a bad thing for dreamers. You have to be naive to be a dreamer. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. And I'll tell you at the time when I started, I didn't really put together how much weapons and have funded fusion research over the years. But my hope is that all this money that we've invested in this can emerge with an energy technology that will really change the world. Uh, and that's what I've wanted to do my whole life and what I hope to continue to do for the rest of my life. Are you a researcher? I mean, you're, you've got this book out, which you co-wrote. You're based in Rochester, New York. Are you associated with the university? I, I am. I am. But I cannot speak on behalf of my employer. So, so we don't know who you work for. Well, it says right there on my profile who I work for. I work for the University of Rochester. So, okay. so, but somebody else is paying your salary. Uh, I currently have. I'm current. I cannot speak on behalf of my employer. Okay. Okay. Is that fair. <laughs> well, you know, people always are, are curious about these sorts of things, especially when people are so evangelical about a technology that's so revolutionary and exciting, and also in its own way, I think potentially at least um terrifying if we had a skeptic on the show matt uh, you're a believer what, what would a more conservative scientist someone who is skeptical who questions all this what might they say what's the when you go to conferences when you speak to other scientists What's the, the major refrain on, 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 on fusion? What do so people say? If you talk to a fusion researcher, 95% of the time, what they'll say is the biggest problem is the thing they're working on almost all the time. Because researchers tend to be this far from their problem. Um, and one of the things that we lack, I think, in the fusion community is that we, we for a long time, didn't have perspective about the whole puzzle. We were each working on our own piece. And so they'll claim that the thing that they're working on is the big criti biggest criticism. Um, you know, my response is generally you've never been asked to do fusion power. Only, there's only been a limited number of programs in the federal budget. And I think at one point it was something like 0.008% of GDP was dedicated to fusion. And a small chunk of that was fusion power. And some of that was tied up with weapons research. So we've never seen that big push from the federal government to do this. But you're not answering my question. There are skeptics, people who simply, people say, for example, determining government budget. Someone is saying that we don't think that fusion should get any more than the billion or two billion it's been initially allocated. Why would they say that? Why not put a trillion dollars if it's such a big deal? <laughs> well, there is a public perception problem. And like I said earlier, most of the public won't believe fusion is real until they can see a plant and put their hand on it. 
So, you know, it's like flight. Everyone said flight was impossible. It was never going to happen. Man-powered flight was never going to happen. And people believe that right up to the point where it actually did happen. And, and even after the Wright brothers' flight, it was misinterpreted in the media. Most people didn't understand what was going on. It actually took a few years until there was actually an accident where someone actually crashed a plane. And then suddenly the public woke up to the fact that flight was real. Um, I feel the same way about fusion power. We're pre-flight, and so we're not getting the attention we need from the public, and therefore that translates into political support and funding in Congress. Does that answer your question? Not really, but uh, you're you're choosing to to sidestep it. What about um, the, the 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 headlines this week or last week about these breakthroughs? How big a deal are they? These so, the fact that the university. Um, uh, it, which university was it? it? Was in San Diego. This was the National Ignition Facility at Cal in California at Livermore right. National Labs. What was exciting about the NIF shot was that they ignited the plasma. They put fusion reactions together in a chain. And when you do that, you, the energy out suddenly spikes. And a, a fusion chain reaction has been something that's been impo nearly impossible for decades and decades and decades. It was only in December of this last year that we were able to do it conclusively. And that made international headlines, as you know. So that fusion chaining event means that you put a certain amount of energy in, you can suddenly get this huge boost out and it gets you much closer to net power, which is what we're chasing. We want uh, are there power. still, I mean, you said real pre-flight. What would bring it to post-flight? What, what has to happen with nuclear fusion? So the equivalent the of the Wright brothers getting a, a plane up in the air. Right. The, we, we're about a third of the way to net. Third of the way to net. We need to get over one. We need to put get energy more energy out than we put into the system. Mm. No system has done that. But I do believe, I do believe that Commonwealth system called Spark, when they turn that on, they're going to turn it on before 2026 is up. I do believe that system will get net power. That's a pretty that's a pretty strong predict prediction. But so I think that will net power, power. It means it is producing more energy. It more energy is coming out than you put in. That's it's correct. like magic. It's not magic. It's, it's, it's not magic at all. It's physics. And it's also the result of 70 years of hard work by scientists and engineers around the world. Is there um, a father it, to this? Is there a Teller, an Einstein, an Oppenheimer, a scientist who, who really pioneered this idea? I think every there are champions across this whole field. And um, their stories really haven't been told because the public isn't paying attention. And we'll, I'll leave history to judge, but I think once we get in that power, we'll see a lot more interest from the public. I hope it's a watershed moment. I think it's going to be something that's going to really shock people that this is real. And then you're going to have a lot of people from the commercial world looking at this and going, what can we commercialize from this? What can we sell out of this space? And I think there's going to be a lot of technologies that will come out that will drive our economy, the U.S. economy and the world economy for, for a long time. Well, you've made your, your point about um, about uh, uh, addressing our climate crisis. Uh, you also say it'll carry humans to Mars. How's that going to work? Where will it take us, this technology, quite literally? Well, I mean, a fusion thruster, like I said earlier, is 30 days to Mars and 30 days on Mars. And, 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 30 and what days is it on. currently to Mars? Uh, how long? Uh, months. Months. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, Andrew. I don't know. I'm not going to answer that because I don't know. Months at least, I think years. Um, a fusion thruster is 
probably the biggest type of thruster that we have no exists aside from something that's sci-fi. Uh, and the way it works is what you do is you start a fusion plasma in the back end. Particles escape at some percentage of the speed of light. They hit the ship forward and then shoot out the back, and that pushes the, the ship forward. So the flight to Mars is momentum building, speeding all the way up, getting about halfway, turning the ship 180 degrees around, and then firing the rocket back to slow it down to get to Mars. And we have a number of small businesses that are NASA-funded companies that have various ideas for this. Um, they formed a space committee at the Fusion Industry Association. We have an industry association now. And they've written a roadmap for how the U.S. could support this technology moving forward. And the whole system gets much more interesting when you add in superconducting powerful magnets. That amplifies the performance immensely. So the, the, the situation is we're merging fusion technology, superconducting technology, and space technology. And right in that middle center is fusion rockets. You mentioned uh, Sam Altman, one of the great visionaries of Silicon Valley. Uh, one person we haven't talked about who I would assume would be particularly intrigued by this is Elon Musk, of course, uh, SpaceX, Tesla, now X, the, uh, the, the, the next chapter of Twitter. What, what's M Musk and indeed Bezos's take on, on fusion technology? Well, I can answer for Bezos. He invested in nuclear fusion through Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And so a large chunk of his money ended up uh, supporting MIT's startup. He's also uh, had some investment in General Fusion. So General Fusion is a Vancouver-based startup doing fusion. Um, they just announced a plant that they're going to build in British Columbia, the demonstration plant. So it's exciting to see them. They've been around for about 20 plus years. In terms of Musk, I, I can't speak for him. I don't have a, I don't have a, uh, you know, a telescope into his brain. I know in passing he's made comments about how commercially viable fusion is. I think he's skeptical. But, you know, if somebody came forward with a fusion rocket that was viable, I think he would definitely give them a call back. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we did a show uh, a couple of months ago uh, with Ashley Vance, who was the original biographer um, of... Uh, of Musk, uh, and the show was about when the heavens uh, went on sale. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, uh, but um, are we at a similar moment finally, Matt, when everything's up for grabs with this new technology? And, and as I said, some people are going to be very nervous if you give entrepreneurs, wealthy people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Sam Altman, the technology that will allow them to quite literally colonize space. Are we going to need new laws, new restrictions, new regulation in this new technology if indeed it turns out to be as radically revolutionary and disruptive as you suggest? Uh, I, I mean, I think I'd leave that to regulators to decide, to be honest with you. Um, I can tell you that fusion is very exciting and I'm a believer and I'd recommend every, everyone just get the book, get the knowledge out there so they can get a better sense of what it's possible and what's not possible. Also the history and bottom line is we, we really try to make this accessible to really anybody. So 